Well, this morning we are continuing our series on Jacob. And, and as we dive into that, uh, I want to make you aware of something that, that some of you know about me and, and some of you may not know about me. Here, here's that thing. You don't have to spend much time with me before discover, discovering that, that I enjoy competition, right? I, I like to compete. I, I'm, I'm certainly not the most competitive person, but I don't typically shy away from competition. And, and it has been that way for as long as I can remember. Even as a little kid, I was drawn to opportunities to compete. My dad would come home at lunch breaks. He was also a pastor, and, and he would come home at lunch because the church was fairly close by. And, and because I just love competition and love to play games, we would play Uno on his lunch break, right? And so we would do that. Now, my, my enjoyment for competition is one of the reasons that I also enjoy playing games and sports. I like the challenge that they provide. I like the strategy that's involved. And like other competitive people, I like to win, right? As a former NFL coach Herm Edwards said in a classic post-game rant, you play to win the game, right? That is why you play. You don't play to have a good time. You play to win, right? Other competitive people can relate. Some of you I'm turning off right now, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. Now, my wife Erin is also competitive. A lot of you may have only seen her as gentle and sweet, but I would like to tell you there's another side, right? There is another side. She is competitive, and so because we're both competitive, it's not uncommon for us to play a board game with one another or, or even to get together with friends for a game night. Now, as other competitive couples know all too well, Playing a game with your spouse is when the sparks really start to fly, right? I mean, because in that situation, you have two people who want to win. And not only that, they feel comfortable enough with one another to let it all hang out, right? And to go all in to get the W. Of course, we always keep it civil. And we've never once gotten into an argument over a game, right? Although there was a time. There was a time when we lived in Ohio when a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, would, would come over fairly regularly for dinner and board games. Our game of choice was Sorry, the simple four-man board game. We had three people. Now, again, it, it's a simple game. There's some strategy. There's, there's some luck, however you want to call it, right? And, and as three competitive people, we brought the intensity to this board game. Now, if you're familiar with Sorry, you may be wondering, is it even possible for that game to be intense? I assure you, it is very possible for that game to be intense. Our competitive spirit was evident in the fact that we even kept a tally of wins and losses on a scratch piece of paper. And my competitive wife still has that piece of paper when today... Se almost seven years later. Now, over a period of three months, three months, she won every single game. At one point, I kid you not, she was 19 and 0. And my friend Tim and I were 0 and 19 and in need of counseling. And as you can see, I finished at a measly 2-19, and 19, and it still haunts me to this day, right? Well, and, and while I enjoy competing against other people, 
One of my favorite games growing up was, was one in which you really compete against yourself. The game I'm referring to is, is Labyrinth. And, and apparently, Labyrinth is also a board game now, but, but I'm referring to the original wooden version of that game that was first introduced in 1946. And, and the idea is that you maneuver this, this steel ball, this marble, through a maze by twisting and turning knobs so that the entire playing field tilts up and down in order to maneuver this ball. And the goal is to get this ball through the entire maze without it falling into the many holes along the way. It's a simple game, but it's more challenging than it looks. Now this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that includes some twists and turns, roadblocks and bumps in the road, just like Labyrinth. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 27, or if you don't have a, a hard copy of the Word of God, then certainly open up your Bible app and, and navigate your way to Genesis 27. And while doing so, I would like to bring you up to speed in case you weren't here the last couple of weeks and, and, and let you know some of what we've been talking about regarding the life of Jacob. Two weeks ago, we began this series entitled Jacob, and, and we're working our way through the biblical account of Jacob's life found primarily in the book of Genesis. And while we've been focusing on Jacob, his family, as we've come to see very quickly, plays a significant role in his story. Jacob's parents were Isaac and Rebekah. And early on in chapter 25, we learn that Rebekah was unable to have children for many years. She was barren. However, God did eventually bless her with children, twin boys. And due to, the appearance, due to his appearance at birth, the oldest son was given the name Esau, which means Harry. Scripture tells us that Esau was an outdoorsman. We also learn that Esau was Isaac's favorite child. Their second son emerged from the womb, holding on to his brother's heel, so that he was given the name Jacob, meaning heel grabber. And contrary to Esau, Jacob was, was more refined. He, he liked to stay at home. And Genesis 25 tells us that Rebekah favored Jacob. Since the beginning of this series, we've also talked about this figurative meaning of the name Jacob. And that figurative meaning is he deceives. And last week we began to see Jacob live up to the meaning of his name. In the latter half of Genesis 25, Jacob deceives his older brother Esau in an effort to obtain Esau's birthright. Now again, the birthright is the oldest son's share of the material estate of the family. And the oldest son would not only receive uh, his, his portion, but he would receive a double portion of that inheritance, right? While all the other kids received just their share, the oldest son would receive a double portion. So it had value. And Jacob understood the value of the birthright, and he desired to have it for himself. And so one of the things that we looked at last week is that Jacob took advantage of Esau's extreme fatigue and extreme hunger by giving Esau a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright. And of course, what Jacob did was not right, right? We shouldn't deceive others. However, Esau is also to blame. Genesis 25, 34 says that Esau despised his birthright, meaning he considered it to have little value. He considered it to be of little worth. 
And as a result, his assessment of the value of the birthright led him to choose a meal over the right to inherit. Unfortunately, things don't get much better for Esau in Genesis 27. In fact, they get, they get worse. If you haven't already done so, please do turn to Genesis 27 and follow along with me as, as I read, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jacob was old and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, from this particular point in Genesis chapter 27, Isaac would actually go on to live a few more decades. However, as his health begins to fail, he feels that now, in this particular time, and now, and now is the time to give his blessing to Esau, his oldest son. Now, chances are, maybe not true of all of us, but chances are we're, we're probably not too familiar with this particular culture that Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau were, were living in. And so it's important for us to understand the significance of this patriarchal blessing that Isaac is referring to here in the early parts of chapter 27. See, from what we need to understand is that there's, there's a social perspective regarding this blessing. And this social perspective would be that this, this blessing is taken seriously by the Father and the Son. And to some degree, they expect the blessing to impact the destiny of the Son. They expect it to change, in some respects, the course of the Son's life or whoever is receiving this blessing. There's also, though, a theological perspective that we need to have, and that's that this blessing that was given is not given as a prophetic message, right? It, it's simply the hopes and wishes of a father for his son, meaning that God isn't obligated to fulfill the blessing. God doesn't have to make it come to fruition. However, the fact that this particular blessing here in Genesis 27 is included in Scripture and turns out accurately, as we'll see in future weeks and even a bit this morning, it gives us the sense that, that this particular blessing has God's stamp of approval. One commentator even writes, whether we would say that Isaac is blessed with divine insight in making the pronouncement or that God sees fit to honor the pronouncement, it's just semantics. However it works out, it happens, and, and it seems that God's stamp of approval is on this particular blessing. And so all that to say, being on the receiving end of this kind of blessing is a big deal. Lastly, the giving of the blessing is to be this, this celebratory affair, which is why Isaac instructs Esau to pre prepare a meal. It's kind of like how many of our celebrations happen around food, even on Father's Day, where a lot of us will spend the day or the afternoon around a grill. That was also the case in this particular instance, as they celebrated a meal accompanied the celebration. Let's continue reading to see what happens next. And as, and as we read this section, you'll begin to see some of these twists and turns and, and bumps in the road that we were referring to earlier. Let's read chapter or verse 5 through 17. 
Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and, and would, he would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her oldest son, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and bread she had made. Now, we're not exactly sure why Rebekah, or what would motivate Rebekah to devise this plan for Jacob to receive the blessing that was meant for Esau. Her motivation could be that Jacob is her favorite son. Or perhaps in the back of her mind, she has the prophecy told to her by God regarding her sons. A prophecy that we've looked at multiple times and that we'll look at more this morning. That prophecy was given in Genesis 25 verse 23. It says, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, the older, and the older will serve the younger. For whatever reasons, Rebekah comes up with a plan, and Jacob, the deceiver, agrees to go along with it. From there, they make preparations to execute their plan. However, having a plan is one thing, but carrying it out is quite another. Let's keep reading, starting with verse 18 of chapter 27. It says, He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked? I am, he replied. And then he said, My son Bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, 
Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. You see, Rebecca and Jacob's plan worked to perfection. And, and while suspicious at first, and, and rightly so, Isaac was soon convinced that it was Esau who stood before him to receive the blessing. And as in Genesis chapter 25, Jacob's deceit allows him to get what he desires. His lies and his deception allows him to take what he wants. In chapter 25, it was Esau's birthright. And now in chapter 27, the blessing meant for Esau was bestowed upon Jacob. And while it seems to be the result of deception, the blessing Jacob receives is further fulfillment of God's prophecy regarding Esau and Jacob. As chapter 25 verse 23 says, the older will serve the younger. Now, as, as you might imagine, Esau is not pleased when he learns, when he finds out that he has been deceived once again. And we see his response starting in verse 30 of chapter 27. It says, after Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he has taken my blessing. You see, in chapter 25, what we took a deeper look at last Sunday, it's easy for us to condemn Esau for the foolish decision that he made to sell his birthright. We found ourselves, at least I did, we found ourselves wanting to ask him, how could you be so stupid, right? How could you make such an ill-advised exchange? However, in chapter 27, it's much easier to begin to have compassion for Esau. Because while he may have despised his birthright, we now see that he desires the blessing. His response indicates that. Bless me, me too, my father. Unfortunately, both the birthright and the blessing have been 
taken from him. Now, if you have siblings, then, then you understand the idea behind a, a love and hate relationship, right? And it's oftentimes it feels like a pendulum that swings between two extremes. And this is especially true when we live under the same roof. Now, I'm sure Esau knew the reality of the love-hate relationship better than most. And having been deceived and taken advantage of on two separate occasions now, you can probably guess which direction the pendulum had swung for Esau. In chapter 27, verse 41, it says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. However, in an effort to preserve the life of her favorite son, Rebekah comes to the aid of Jacob once again. And as chapter 27 comes to a close, Rebekah makes plans to send Jacob to live with her brother Laban in order to keep him safe from Esau. What do we learn from all this? We work our way through a story like this. A lot of things are going on. A lot of characters, a lot of people playing a role in this particular story. What do we learn from all this? What is there for us to apply to our lives? Is it simply just a narrative story? Something that's like, all right, that, that's, that's nice to know that it only sets us up well for, for what's to come later in the, in the life of Jacob and the story of Jacob. What can we take away? What can we apply to our lives? And really to answer these questions, we, we got to go back yet again and start with the prophecy told by God to Rebekah in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23 says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. You see, from my perspective, the story of Jacob is a lot like this game, Labyrinth. For our purposes, the, the birth of Jacob is the beginning of this maze. It's the starting point. It's where the marble begins. And the end of this maze is the, is the fulfillment of God's prophecy regarding the life of Jacob in verse 23. It's the desired destination, the fulfillment of God's will. It's where we want the marble to be. And like the game of Labyrinth, Jacob's journey to fulfill God's prophecy or to have God's prophecy fulfilled on his life. The journey is filled with twists and turns. It's filled with potholes and roadblocks. As we've studied chapter 25 and 27 of Genesis the past two weeks, we've seen these twists and turns come in the form of deception and, and parental favoritism. Now in, in murderous threats and certainly family strife, a divided family. Yet throughout both chapters, we continue to see the role reversal between Esau and Jacob. In other words, we continue to see the fulfillment of God's will. 
when it comes to this particular chapter and this particular passage. One of the truths that we can learn, or one of the truths that we can be reminded of, is that nothing can prevent God's will from happening. Absolutely nothing can prevent God's will from taking place. Isaiah 14, verses 24 and then 26 through 27, a passage that Pastor Chris highlighted for us a couple of weeks ago, says this, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? See, whether it's our sin and our bad choices, or the sin and bad choices of other people, nothing will prevent God's plan from taking place. Nothing will prevent the fulfillment of God's will. And this is exactly what we see in the story of Jacob. All the sin issues that we encounter in these two particular chapters, 25 and 27, none of them prevent God from doing what he wants to do. Another truth that we can learn, or another truth that we can be reminded of, is that God can and God will use both good and evil to accomplish his purposes. In other words, God is willing to use the good, the bad, and the ugly to accomplish his purposes and his plan. And again, we see this throughout chapter 25 and 27. God takes the shortcomings and the sin issues of Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob, and he uses them he uses their sin issues to accomplish his will. One example, probably the most prominent, is that Jacob's deception ultimately leads to him receiving the birthright. It leads to him receiving the patriarchal blessing from Isaac. It leads to him receiving the covenant promise from God, thus fulfilling God's prophecy in Genesis 25. 23. And here's, here's a crucial point, though, that we need to understand, especially in regards to this particular truth, this particular idea that God is willing to use the good, bad, and ugly to accomplish his purposes. Certainly, God's use of our sin and God's use of our bad decisions to accomplish, accomplish his will should by no means be understood as God's approval of our sinful actions, right? To be clear, God hates sin. That's never going to change. God hates wrongdoing. That is never going to be changed at all throughout history. God is unchanging. And so in light of that, we should never try to justify our sin by thinking, uh, you know what, it, it's no big deal. God can still use it to accomplish his will in my life. 
in that line of thinking, in, in that particular case, we would be ignoring God's call on our lives to live in righteousness. Now, of, of course, God is gracious. And so he, he may use your mistakes to bring about his purposes. However, his grace isn't a license to sin. Paul speaks about this very issue in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is what Paul writes. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, God would much rather accomplish his plan and his purposes and his will through our obedience. Thankfully for us, though, God is sovereign over human affairs and is therefore able to use anything and everything to accomplish his plan. We find further evidence of this truth in the life of Jacob's most well-known son, Joseph. Now, many of you are familiar with that particular story. We find it just a few chapters down the road in the book of Genesis. But long story short, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and they hated him. And as a result of their jealousy, as a result of their hatred, Joseph's flesh and blood sold him into slavery. However, God used the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his purposes. And nowhere is that more clearly seen, clearly stated, than in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. The very end of the book of Genesis. And speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I would invite you to turn your attention, your mindset to, to your own life circumstances. You know what's going on in your own life. And, and as you consider your own life circumstances, you may be wondering, where is God in all of this? You have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what my life looks like right now, how much pain I have, how much suffering I've been through. Where's God in all of this? How can fill in the blank be a part of God's plan? How can the loss of my job be a part of God's plan? How can the death of one of my family members be a part of God's plan? How can a business failure be a part of his plan? How can a broken relationship be a part of God's plan? These are good questions. And in the midst of it all, I wonder if Joseph asked similar questions. God, how can being sold into slavery, how can false accusations, how can prison time, be a part of your plan for me. Now, this morning, there is no way for me to answer these questions as they directly pertain to your circumstances. Everyone's situation is different. What you have going on in your life is 
is different than what somebody else has going on in their life. It's different than the things that I'm dealing with. However, as you consider your life circumstances and wrestle with these questions, which are valid questions, my encouragement to you is to remember Paul's words in Romans 8.28. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. These words can provide us with hope and encouragement especially in the midst of struggle and heartache. Of course, though, it's so important to remember that what we consider to be or define as good may not be what God considers to be good. It may not be what God defines as good. See, ultimately, more than anything else, God is all about our sanctification. He's not about our health. He's not about our wealth. He is not about our comfort. God wants us to become more like Jesus. And when we wrap our minds around that, we can trust that whatever comes our way, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God can use it to make us more like Jesus. If we are willing to be transformed by him. The last truth from this passage that I want us to learn and be reminded of is that God's not fair. He's not fair. And allow me to explain what I mean by that. To do so, we have to begin with a question that that you may have already been thinking about. In fact, somebody came up to me after first service last week with with a a very similar question, a question along these lines. And that question is, why would God bless a deceitful person? I mean, let's be real. Jacob is a scumbag, right? Why would God bless a deceitful person? Throughout Genesis 25 and 27, Jacob is guilty of lying. He's guilty of being deceitful. He takes Esau's birthright and his blessing. He goes to great lengths to trick his father Isaac. Jacob even lies directly to his face. And yet, and this is what we can't understand, God still blesses Jacob. In our minds, Jacob isn't deserving of a blessing. He's deserving of a beating, right? Somebody needs to take him out back. He doesn't deserve to be blessed by God for the way that he's living his life. And so why would God bless Jacob? That doesn't make any sense. Here's the profound answer that I've been, that I've been wrestling with and, and working on for you guys all week. I don't know. I, I don't know. For, for a reason known only to God, he chose to bless Jacob and not Esau. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and through 13 says, Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
A study note I read says that Paul points out that since God's choice was made before they were even born, it was not based on merit, but on God's sovereign freedom to elect whom he will for reasons sufficient to himself. Now I realize my answer, or lack thereof, may not be enough for some of you. You, you still may have a desire to know more, to understand the reasoning behind God's decision to bless Jacob, the deceiver, and not Esau. And while I can certainly appreciate your desire to dig deeper and to know more, I don't believe you're going to be able to find a more concrete answer. Therefore, I want to share one passage of Scripture with you and one phrase that I hope will be helpful to you. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, God's ways and thoughts are higher than ours. He is infinite. We are finite. And of course, there are things that we do not and cannot understand about God. But that shouldn't trouble us. Why? And here's the phrase. Because a God we understand is a God not worth worshiping. In other words, I don't want to worship a God that I can fully wrap my mind around. That God would be too small. And so we can take comfort knowing that we serve a big God. And may our inability to fully understand him be one of the reasons that we worship him. So, so we may not know why God chose to bless a deceitful person. But the fact that he did doesn't seem fair. We don't know why, but that doesn't seem fair. After all, Jacob, the liar and deceiver, is thriving. And rather than punish him, God continues to bless him. And for most of us, our natural response is, that's not fair. Where's the justice in that? I assure you, God is just. Scripture makes that clear. And while we don't have time to unpack it right now, there are consequences to Jacob's actions. For now, suffice it to say, what goes around comes around. And you'll see what I mean in the coming weeks. And while it may be natural for us to whine and complain to God about what's fair, whether in this story or in our own lives, we might want to hold off on doing that. Consider these questions. Is it fair that God sent Jesus to die in your place? Is it fair that Jesus had to pay the punishment for your sins? Is it fair that you can have life when all we deserve is death? You want to talk about what's fair? Is it? See, the reality is we're all broken. We're all in need of grace, just like Jacob. And I'm so glad that God doesn't treat me fairly. Because if he did, I'd be in big trouble. And so before you get too upset by the grace that Jacob receives, 
just remember that you're in need of that same grace to be poured out on you each and every day. As I consider these truths from this passage, I can't help but think of the song, probably because I have little kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) But that song, it communicates that God is sovereign. He's in control. And in light of that, we know that nothing can prevent the fulfillment of his will. He works or he uses the good, bad, and the ugly to accomplish his will. He works all things for our good so that we become more like Jesus. And the only appropriate response may be to thank him for the grace that he freely pours out on us and to surrender our lives to him. May that be what we strive to do each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we're grateful for the, for the story of Jacob and how much it has to show us, to teach us, God, about who you are and what you've done for us. God, for the, for the grace that you have freely poured out on us, we thank you for it. God, may we, may we receive it with, with open arms, knowing that that's the only way that we have life with you. We pray all this. In your son's name, amen.